You're listening to audio provided by Valleydale Church. To find more resources or to donate to this ministry, please check out valleydale.org. Well, this is the week, right? And, you know, I was thinking as uh, Kirkwood was praying, he's so right. We get so tangled up into so many things this time of year. I I left um, Asheville yesterday afternoon late about the time the sun was setting. I was at uh, a a wedding. Debbie's nephew, our nephew, got married. And earlier in the week, her aunt had died this past Monday morning, her last aunt. And they called me and said, would you come and bury her? So I've been burying the dead and helping to marry the unsuspecting. And... um, (laughs) So I was there and uh, got in the, got in, you know, got in the, I got an Uber to get away from the church to get to the airport. And I get to the airport and I, this thing start coming over my phone on the way to the airport. They've shut the Atlanta airport down. A gun went off. Now, who in the world goes through an airport with a gun? <laughs> and who carries a gun? Why would you do it and load the thing? But anyway, that's another question for another day. And boy, I'm telling you what, the airport, it was tangled up last night. You ever, you ever think you're just constantly tangled up into issues, uh, trying to disentangle things that have tangled you up in life, trying to get not, I, I was thinking about that last night. I was sitting there waiting because planes had been delayed. Then you get on the plane and you pull out and the pilot says, well, you know, they've got a mess down in Atlanta. We're just going to have to wait here until they release us to go. And so, uh. Um, I'm sitting there and I'm thinking, you know, in a couple of weeks, Christmas will be. Do y'all realize that? A couple of weeks, Christmas. Are y'all, look, y'all act like you're full of turkey already. Um, Christmas is going to be here. And I thought, I've got all these grandkids that are going to be here. And, um, and the first thing, every, you know, the first morning they're there, they wake up at 530. The, boy, the kids do. And not the parents. I can promise you they don't. Um, but the kids, they wake up and they come down. I'm the only one up. I'm down there trying, I'm trying to be godly. I'm in the study and I'm studying and here I can hear them coming down the steps whispering and they come to the door and they say, doc. And I said, what are y'all doing up so early? We want to go fishing. And so it starts, the day will start. I give them all a rod and reel and I just sit there and I try to disentangle one tangled line after another, after another, after another. Now, when you come to the eighth chapter of Esther, that's what you're coming to. You're coming to a mess of tangles. You've got a, an irreversible situation. And you say, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. I thought we took care of Haman uh, last Sunday. I thought we hanged him. Well, we, we, well they did. Uh, we read about it. They hanged him. You said, well, that should be it. That should be over. Uh, just the hanging of Haman did not solve all the tangled mess that was left. You see, that's so much a part of our lives. We think uh, that we solve an issue and there are no issues that follow in behind. And I'll give you an example. I've pastored for over 40 years. And uh, I'm not the greatest counselor in the world, but over 40 years I've had so many Couples come in and they sat down and they said, we're having problems. We've got this issue and that issue and this other issue. And they start just pouring their heart out to me. And they say, the solution for us is we're just going to get a divorce. And I said, well, why are you here seeing me? 
I said, you're here seeing me because you don't want to get a divorce. Oh, yes, we do. We, we can't find any other solution. And I'm going to say, that's your solution. That's not God's solution. And uh, there have been times they've listened to that. Other times they've not listened to it. Listen, let me tell you, when we solve our own issues uh, in a marriage, in a home, in a family, and we just decide we're going to dissolve what God has put together, it leaves a tangled mess. And I'll just tell you, especially for the woman, and especially, more especially for the children. And there is a tangled mess that is left there and it almost is irreversible. Same thing, listen, same thing with other issues in life. I, I know a pastor back in my home state who had uh, multiple church campuses across the state. In fact, I had a nephew and a niece that was part of that congregation. And he opened up after he confessed that he was an alcoholic and said at the end of uh, a workday, I had to come home and I would take a half a glass of wine. That would help me unwind. And pretty soon it wasn't enough. And so I had to drink a whole, a whole glass of wine. And pretty soon it was a glass and a half of wine. Pretty soon it was a bottle every night. Until the pastor had lost his church, nearly lost his family, was an alcoholic, had to go into a program, comes out, tries to start again in another church with another church, and it's like a bird with a broken wing. If it can ever fly again, it never soars. It never flies as high again. And we think, well, it, you know, this is the answer to my problem. Let me go get a hat. Listen, if they just start, any preacher going to start, don't start out with a half a glass of wine. Just go get the red eye to begin with, it, you know, if ministry is that much of a problem to you. Um, but I, that's my solution. But it just creates one tangle, one knot after another, after another, until it's just irreversible. Well, there you are, Esther chapter 8. What are you going to do in Esther chapter 8? Well, what you're going to do is this. You're going to find that God unravels the irreversible to show he does the impossible. Amen. That's what you find here. In Esther chapter 8, you've got a God who will unravel that which is all messed up, all the entangled, and he shows you in doing that, he's the God that does the impossible. So the hanging of Haman did not just solve all the problems. And I want to walk you through that. And I want you to see this. So let me get there. Esther chapter 8. Uh, we're closing down. Next Sunday, we'll finish up the book of Esther. I've enjoyed it. I don't know if you have, but I get to preach what, since I'm the preacher. I've enjoyed it. Uh, I preach, I try to preach, follow what the Lord wants me to do. So here you come now, watch, beginning verse 1 and verse 2. God disentangles injustice by his providence. Now, have, did you get that? God disentangles injustice by his providence, by his sovereignty, uh, by his power. Now, with that in mind, I want to take you, put your finger right there, Esther 8. Let me take you to Proverbs uh, let me get you over here to Proverbs chapter 29, I believe it is. Proverbs 29. Just look there with me for a minute. And I want, you, I want to read one verse. Proverbs 29, verse 26. I want you to think about this. Many seek the ruler's favor. Many go to the ruler, to the king, to the president for his favor. 
Uh, many go there to seek his face, to get a solution. The word favor there literally in the Hebrew is face. They try to get an audience with him. Why? For justice. But look at what uh, the writer of Proverbs says. But justice for man comes from the Lord. Now, boy, this has been a wild week in America due to a court case where people were trying to seek justice from both sides. Just listen to what this says. It says, many seek the ruler's face, his favor, but justice for man comes from the Lord. Now, just tuck that away in the back of your mind. Go back to Esther chapter 8, and let's pick it up in verse 1. And what you're going to see here is this. You're going to see a couple of reversals. In every one of these points that I'm going to share with you, I'm going to show you these, these unbelievable reversals that come about. They're just miraculous. And there's not one. There are multiple reversals. If there was one, somebody could stand back and say, well, you know, that's just a coincidence. But you've got one after another, after another, after another. So just watch as this begins to take place. And it is the way God carries out justice for those who have been unjustly treated. On the day that King Ahasuerus, that's Xerxes, gave the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews, to Queen Esther. Now, let me just stop and explain that to you. Uh, what's happening here was something that was very common in the ancient world. When a man committed a crime against the state, he was committing it against the king, against the emperor, against the ruler. And so if he was executed because of that, then everything that was his would revert back to the state. And the state, by the way, happened to be the king. Everything would revert back to the king. So here is Haman, and uh, he has uh, been shown to be a traitor, someone who tried to manipulate the king and deceive the king. And so he was put to death, and now everything that was his reverts back to the king. This even happens. It really doesn't happen in, in Israel. You remember when Ahab wanted the, uh, the, the vineyard of Naboth? Do y'all remember that? Okay, two of us remember this. Um, Ahab was king, but he was a Jew. He was married to Jezebel, who was pure pagan. She had brought in the worship of Baal and all these Baal prophets. Uh, he wanted Naboth's vineyard. He knew Naboth couldn't give it to him or sell it to him. Uh, the Jews are told, that's your land. You never part with that land. Uh, but he wanted it. He asked Naboth. Naboth said, look, Ahab, you're a Jew. You know I can't do that. I can't sell you my land. I wouldn't give my land away. This was given to me by God. And uh, Ahab goes home and he gets on his bed and he pouts. You remember? And Jezebel, trying to deal with a pouty husband, goes and she just has Naboth killed. And then she walks back into Ahab and she says, okay, I've taken care of it. Uh, the, the, the vineyard is yours. It reverted back to the king. Well, that's what you're seeing here. And you say, well, what about his family? Well, don't forget Zeresh, the wife of Haman, was the very one who told Haman, build a gallows 75 feet high and hang Mordecai on it. If he's upsetting you that badly, just go on and hang him. Do away with him. So don't forget, she's the one that plotted and helped plot the death of Mordecai. So now here is Ahasuerus, the king, Xerxes. Do you remember what Haman was doing? Haman was going to wipe out. He was going to annihilate and destroy all of the Jews 
and he would plunder across the entire empire, 127 uh, provinces from North Africa, Ethiopia, all the way across India, the then known world. He was going to wipe out all the Jews and when he did that, he was going to plunder. He was going to take all of their finances, all of their wealth for himself. He was going to pay the king off uh, what the king wanted, and he was going to take the rest. Now, here's the first reversal. Here is Haman, the Gentile, going to kill all the Jews and take their wealth. Haman, the Gentile, is executed, and his wealth goes to a Jew. Dadgum, just sit there, y'all. Now, that's amazing. And you could have just said, well, you know, that's, wow, that's pretty fascinating. That's an interesting little tidbit of history. Um, but uh, that could be coincidental. Well, listen, this happens again and again and again. Well, that's what's going to happen. Now, look, verse 2. Look at this next reversal that is here. The king took off his signet ring. In other words, what God does is God comes and he moves in justice for the Jews. He's going to do it again in verse 2. The king took off his signet ring, which he had taken away from Haman, and he gave it to Mordecai. And Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman. Now, Haman was going to do all of this because he hated Mordecai. Mordecai would not bow down to him. Haman was the second most powerful man in the kingdom, in the Medo-Persian empire. And Xerxes took off his signet ring which was the same as having your signature. Now, some of y'all have your signature online. Uh, they have my signature here online. But 99% of the time, I sign my own letters. I don't, I don't like, I don't like signing. I've got over 50 letters on my desk right now that have got to be signed. I'm going to get in here tomorrow morning and I sign them myself. I don't like using um, a computer-generated signature. Uh, it's so impersonal. I had somebody in, my, in, in uh, a church I pastored before who was sending out letters from the church and they were putting my signature that was online. They were putting my signature on it. And somebody came in and said, hey, this is going out under your name. So I had to call all of the staff in and say, listen, there's only two people here and only one that counts that really can use my signature. One is my secretary, the other is my wife. So nobody else can use. Well, this is what it was. I, I tell you all that to say this. What that signet ring was, was the king's signature. And Haman had that. Xerxes had given him that. He could en enact laws. He could legislate laws, decrees, edicts, and sign it with the king's signature. Well, now he gave that to Haman, but before Haman was hanged, obviously he took it off of Haman's finger. And look at what happens. Here is Haman who gives an edict, signs it with that ring to kill the Jews, and now he is executed and the ring goes to the Jew that he was going to execute. What a reversal. Who can do the irreversible but God? And it comes down to Mordecai's life, Esther's life, the life of all of the Jews, and here is God. You can go and seek the face of the king. You can go and seek the favor of the king, but the Lord gives justice to man. Justice only comes because of God. God is the one who delivers justice to our lives. Now, what we try to do is we try to go 
And we try to work it out ourselves. Well, listen, I've not been treated fairly. I've not been treated equitably. I've not been treated right. I've suffered some kind of injustice. And every single one of us in this place could stand up and talk about how we've been unjustly treated. Some of you in this way, some of you in that way, some of you in another way. But every single one of us would say, oh, there's a situation that I could tell you it wasn't fair, it wasn't right, it wasn't Christian. I was treated, you know, unjustly, and uh, we could all share with that. But what do we do? We try to go work it out. Yes, we do. I'm going to say, I'm going to say it for you. Amen, preacher. Amen. We try to go and work it out ourselves. And what do we do when we try to go and seek justice for ourselves? We botch it up. There's a little place in Spain about the center of Spain called Borgia. It's a little town, Borgia, and uh, just about two, three miles, two and a half, three miles out of Borgia is a little chapel, a little church that's called the Sanctuary of Mercy. Now, you would never hear about that had a, a Spanish artist, a real Spanish master uh, by the name of um, Elias Garcia. Elias Garcia uh, uh, Elias Martinez. Elias Martinez went to that little chapel and he painted what became a masterpiece on the wall there. It's called the Echi Homo, uh, which is uh, Behold the Man. And it was painted on the wall, and you can see from the painting, it began to pop off of the wall, the plaster there. And uh, it uh, got worse and worse and worse. And there was an 80 year old amateur artist. In the congregation there, uh, her name was uh, Cecilia, uh, Cecilia Gomez. Her name was Cecilia Gomez, and she went to take care of the painting, this, uh, this, this master, masterfully painted picture of Jesus, and this is how she painted it. That was her restoration. It is called the greatest disaster of restoration in the art world. She ruined a masterpiece thinking that she could take care of it and somebody interviewed her and said, why did you do that? And she said, because we like to save money in the church here and so we all in the church try to do this ourselves. Uh, can I make a suggestion here? This isn't a business meeting where we try to find somebody who can take care of the carpet or the floor or the painting or the roof or something. Sometimes it's better to go outside the church and get somebody that knows what they're doing, even if it does cost a little bit. Now, look, that didn't cost anybody anything. I'm just sharing that with you. Um, but that's what we do. We botch up what would be a masterpiece of the reversal of God's justice in our lives when we take things into our own hands and we try to solve them ourselves. Well, God can do that. God can disentangle the injustice by his sovereignty if we'll stand back and let him do it. Now, let me give you to the second thing. Let me get you to this second thing. And the second thing is this, is that God countermands the decree of death. Now, what you've got happening in the book of Esther is that a decree of death is passed for the Jews. 
And you're going to see how God will countermand this. And there are two things that I want you to notice in, in, in this passage, beginning in verse 3. And number one, the first thing is the nobility of Esther. By the way, let me tell you, to me, this is the greatest moment of Esther in the book. I know everybody goes back to, uh, um, the what is it, the third chapter uh, where, you know, she... Uh, the fourth chapter where she comes forward and says, okay, I'm going to do it. I'm going to reply uh, to um, uh, the king. I'm going to go tell the king what's happened. If I perish, I perish. Uh, if I die, I die. Everybody points back to that. I'm going to tell you, I think this is the greatest moment in Esther's life. It shows her real nobility here. And all I can do is just walk you through it. You see, the problem is this. I've not even told you what the problem is. The decree still exists to kill the Jews. Killing Haman has it done, untangled that. Killing Haman did not cause that to go away. That's part of the law of the Medes and the Persians. 3,000 years later, we still use that expression of something that is irreversible. Now listen and just watch the nobility of Esther here beginning in verse 3. Esther spoke again to the king. Now watch it what she does. She fell at his feet and she wept and she implored him. Now let me tell you what she's doing. Uh, she's going in and she's literally taking her life in her hand because you never would go before an oriental monarch depressed, crying, or weeping. And you say, well, you know, how do you know that? Well, number one, because I studied. But number two, let me take you back. Look back just a few pages to Nehemiah chapter 2. Uh, this is Artaxerxes. He comes after Xerxes. Xerxes dies. Artaxerxes comes to the throne. That's the time of Nehemiah right after Esther. And look at what Nehemiah says. He hears about the walls of Jerusalem being burned down. And he's depressed. He's sad. And so in Nehemiah 2 verse 2, he goes in before the king because he was the cupbearer. So the king said to me, why is your face sad? Though you're not sick. This is nothing but sadness of heart. You're depressed. Look, look, look at what Nehemiah says. Then I was very much afraid. Why? Because you never would go in before a king depressed, weeping, crying. You would never bring the, don't bring the king down. Lord knows he's bad enough when he's in a good mood. Don't ever get the guy in a bad mood. So she goes in there and she falls down at his feet before him and she is weeping and she's imploring him, listen to what she does, to avert the evil scheme of Haman the Agagite, his plot which he had devised against the Jews. And the king extended. Now listen, this guy really loves this woman. He never turns her down. He never says no to a single thing that she asks him. Uh, and so he extends the golden scepter, which meant, okay, we won't cut your head off. That's exactly what it meant. We'll let you live. So Esther arose and stood before the king. And she said, now watch what she does. She says four things before she gets to what she wants. Now listen to this woman. You just got to love Esther. You really do. If it pleases the king, number one, honey, if this pleases you, number two, if I found favor before you, honey, if I've ever done anything 
that has benefited you. Number three, if the matter seems proper to the king, honey, if this is the right thing, if you think this is the right thing, number four, if I'm pleasing in your sight, do I look good to you? (laughs) Well, she had him at that point because this is the most beautiful woman in the whole place. Now watch it, what she asks. She goes before him and look at the attitude she has. Now look at what she's going to, let it be written to revoke. I had to go and look that word up. I thought I knew what it was and it was not what I thought it was. And when I got to the Hebrew, the Hebrew word there is shuv. Shuv, which means to repent. Repent, shuv, we normally translate it repent, means this, I walk in this direction and I shuv. I turn around and I walk in this direction. That's repentance. I'm walking this way and I repent and I turn around. She says, is there any way this thing can be repented of? Is there any way we can revoke it, take it back, undo it? The letters devised by Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, which he wrote to destroy the Jews who are in all the king's provinces. For how can I endure to see the calamity which will befall my people? And how can I endure to see the destruction of my kindred? Now, I want you to realize that when they hanged Haman, it let Esther and Mordecai off the hook. But that wasn't enough. Nobody else is here, not even Mordecai is here, petitioning for the lives of the Jews. But now here's the nobility of Esther. Here is a woman that says it doesn't matter what happens to me. I love and care for my people. I don't want them destroyed. I don't want them hurt in any kind of way. Can we do something here? That will spare my people. It doesn't matter if I'm free. It doesn't matter if I'm alive. Because if they're not free and if they're not alive, I can't bear it. I can't stand to see what will befall my people. I can't endure to see the destruction of my kindred. There is the nobility of this woman. But now listen to what the king says. Look at verse 8. Really look at the second part of verse 8. Because uh, Xerxes says this. For a decree which is written in the name of the king and sealed with the king's signet ring may not be repented of. Can't be revoked. He's the king. This guy rules the then known world and he says there is one thing I cannot do that I cannot go and, and undo a law that has been written. In fact, I was going to take you over to Daniel, and I guess I'll do it. I'm going to go to Daniel chapter 6. I want you to listen. You remember Daniel is there. In the Babylonian Empire, it becomes Persian. But listen to what they say. Everybody knew this. Daniel chapter 6 and verse 8. They come before the king. Uh, And they say, O king, establish the injunction and sign the document so that it may not be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which may not be revoked. And, And then they come over in verse 15 and they say this, Then these men came by agreement to the king and said to the king, Recognize, O king, that it is a law of the Medes and the Persian that no injunction or statute which the king establishes may be undone. It's like when Congress passes a law, it can't be undone. It's like when the president enacts executive privilege, it can never be undone. 
Now, we don't have that here, thank the Lord. It can be. Uh, but there, it could not be undone. And he says, it's impossible. There's no way we can do that. That's the nobility of Esther. Now look at the magnanimity of our God. God is going to do something here. God is going to put a thought in the mind of a pagan king. Can God do that? Can God use a pagan president? Has, hadn't he? Uh, can God use a, a pagan uh, chairman of the Communist Party uh, in Beijing? Yeah, sure he can. What about uh, can God use an egomaniac who runs Russia uh, from inside the Kremlin? Yeah, sure he can. Because let me tell you something. The Word of God says that the heart of a king is like the channels of water in the hand of God. He turns it anyway. Have you ever seen a river that just does this? Back and forth, back and forth. That's exactly what the passage is saying, is that God's got the heart of the king right here. You think he's making decisions. Listen, God's just moving him where he wants him to be. Just back and forth. You remember what Jesus said to Pilate? When Jesus was standing before Pilate, Jesus looked up at him and he said, Listen, let me, let me tell you something, big boy. You would have no power over me except that it has been given to you, not by Rome. What did Jesus say? From above. You, the governor, the appointed governor by Rome, would have no power to do anything had it not been given to you from above. Now, does that help you feel better about America right now? <laughs> well, just remember that. Here he is, God's going to put a thought in the mind of a pagan king. Verse 8, look at the first part of that. Or back up to verse 7, look at this. He's going to point out what he's already done. Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew, uh, Behold, I've given the house of Haman to Esther, and him they have hanged on the gallows because he stretched out his hand against the Jews. And he said, I've already done everything I know to do. But now you write to the Jews as you see fit. In the king's name, seal it with the king's signet ring. You write an edict. Just like Haman wrote an edict and sealed it with my ring. Now you write. You see the reversal here? Now you write an edict. And it is going to countermand. That is, it will not cancel that, but it can override it. And so what he does is this. So the king's scribes, they called him in. The king calls in all of his scribes, all the legislature, all the Congress. He calls in and he says, this is what's going to happen. Mordecai is going to begin to give you an edict. All that Mordecai commanded to the Jews, the satraps, the governors, the princes, the provinces, which extended from India to Ethiopia, 127 provinces, to every province according to its script, and to every people according to their language, as well as to the Jews according to the script and their language. Now listen, let me just ask you a question. Should Christians, should the people of God be involved in the legislative process of the country? Some of y'all ought to run for office. I'm serious. I'm not being funny. Some of y'all ought to run for office. 
The people of God should be very much. You say, well, what about separation of church and state? Well, show it to me in the Constitution first. The separation of church and state written by Jefferson was written to a Baptist association. It was written to say the state cannot tell the church what to do. But the state desperately needs to hear from the people of God. And right here you have the people of God involved in a legislative process. Brothers and sisters, if there was ever a time where we needed to be a part of that, it's right now. I want you to listen to something Chuck Colson wrote. I will tell you one thing. If your Christian commitment does not put you in direct opposition of the values of this culture, if you don't have to make those kind of choices between God and man, if you do not feel that this culture is making you make some hard choices Check your Christian commitment because it is inevitable in the value system of this culture that your Christian commitment is going to put you on a collision course. If it doesn't, you'd better wonder if God is really at work in your life. Chuck Colson. Well, Mordecai does. <laughs> it puts him in direct contradiction to what was already a part of the law. And here God gives them an insight, a way into this. God's going to counterman the decree of death that was ordered against the Jews. Now, that was what that was. Do you realize that there's a decree of death against you? Did you know that? Take your copy of God's Word. Put your finger right there in Esther. Go with me over here to Colossians chapter 2. There's a decree of death against every one of us in here, against me and against you. Now listen to what Paul writes in Colossians chapter 2, beginning in verse 13. When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, that is, before you were saved, you were dead in your sin. He made you alive together with him having forgiven us all our transgressions. Now, if you've trusted Jesus Christ, that's what's happened to you. If, put, if you've put your faith and trust in him, he has forgiven you of all your sins. How did he do that? He canceled out the certificate of debt. Do you know you had a certificate of debt? For the wages of sin is death. What are the wages of sin? It's the price tag that goes with sin. You sin, you got to pay the price. The fact of the matter is you can't pay the price for sin. You don't have perfect blood. You don't have sinless blood. You've sinned. And the wages of that sin, the price tag of that sin is death. Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 4 and verse 20, I believe. Listen, the soul that sinneth, it shall die. So I had, and you had, if you know Jesus Christ, a certificate of debt consisting of a decree against us that was hostile. In other words, this was a decree that called for your death. Not just your physical death. This was a decree that called for your physical death and your spiritual death. That's been taken out of the way. And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Whew. 
Amen. So that he countermands the decree of death over your life. You don't have to die spiritually. You will not die spiritually. Now, you'll die physically. That's nothing for eternity. We'll all die physically. But we don't have to die spiritually. That's eternal separation from God. Now, let me show you the last thing. And the last thing is this, is that God is going to reverse all the, our regrets with personal revival. Look at what happens beginning in verse 15. Mordecai went out. Now, I, I want you just to think about this. Mordecai is going to go out. Out of the presence of the king in royal robes of blue and white with a large crown of gold and a garment of fine linen and purple. Do you remember when the first edict was passed by Haman? How did Mordecai go out? Sackcloth and ashes. Now the second edict that overrides the first, he goes out how? Dressed in royal robes and a crown. How are you going to go out? I'm going to get to walk around all over that glory land dressed in a robe and crown. You can't get away from the fact that this looks almost like a picture of the second coming of Christ right here. Now look at this. When he goes out, the city of Susa shouted and rejoiced. When the first edict was passed, how did the city of Susa respond? In confusion. Go back and read it. Now that this edict is passed, how do they respond? They shout and they rejoice. Yet another reversal. And look at what happens for the Jews. For the Jews, there was light, gladness, joy, and honor. This is amazing. In each and every province and in each and every city where the king's command and his decree arrived, there was gladness and joy for the Jews and a feast and a holiday. Now watch this. Look at this. Lord have mercy. Here's the revival. Have you ever noticed this before? And many among the peoples of the land became Jews. They saw the working of God in the life of the Jews. And they converted to Judaism. They left their paganism and they came to the worship of the one true monotheistic God, Jehovah. It's like a New Testament revival. They saw what God did in the lives of the Jews. They saw the gladness. They saw the joy. They saw the light of the Lord on these Jewish people. They saw how these Jewish people honored God. And because of that, people were converting to Jehovah by the droves in the day of Mordecai. Now, that doesn't excite us too much for two reasons. Number one. We don't celebrate a cotton-picking thing in the church. I guarantee you, you celebrated more yesterday, unless you're from Auburn. Um, and then, hey, listen, Auburn will win again one day, and you'll celebrate then. I guarantee you, Mississippi State people are celebrating. I know Clemson people were celebrating. They're watching a thing during the wedding. Um, that's what cell phones have done. How many of y'all are watching something right now? Anyway, and um, it, 
you know, Alabama's celebrating. We celebrate more about a football win that we'll never think about again than we ever celebrate that God gave us nearly a million dollars two Sundays ago. Well, so what? That's a big deal. I know a lot of churches that like to have that big deal. God's blessed us in incredible ways. We don't ever celebrate. People don't ever see the joy of Jesus in our life. They never see the gladness of God. They never see us honor God. They hear us moan and groan and complain, but they never see us, the people of God. If you stop and think about this, all they had to go on was watching the response of the Jews to what God had done for them. And people said, I want that too. If they saw us smile, they'd begin to wonder what's going on in their lives. The second thing is this. I don't think we ever take seriously the fact that people around the world are dying and going to hell because they've never heard the name Jesus. Do you know that this whole empire stretched across what is now the 1040 window? The 1040 window is where the most lost people are gathered in the world. It's all across North Africa, it's across the Middle East, and it's all the way across through to Southeast Asia. That whole swath of land right there is the very empire of the Medes and the Persians. And it was across that empire that these people saw what God had done in the life of the Jews. And they were coming together. Those people represent over 6,000 languages that have never heard the name Jesus Christ. That's our responsibility. That's what God's called us to do. Not to come in here and sit and soak in the fact that we're saved and never be excited about it. But to take the gospel. I got in that uh, Uber last night. Young African-American lady was driving. And she said, what are you doing here? Because she picked me up in front of a church. She said, what are you doing here? I said, well, I'm up here for a wedding. And I said, I had a funeral. I did a funeral earlier in the week and wedding today. And i am got to get back to Birmingham tonight. So I can preach tomorrow morning. You want to know the first thing she said to me? My name is, and I can't, it, hey, look, I'm 64. I can't remember what her name, it began with a J. She said, my name is this, and I'm asking you, will you pray for me? And she began to pour her heart out to me about how a man had used her and abused her and walked off and left her. And she says, I'm trying to get on my feet and start over again. And she's from New York City and uh, now down here in the mountains of Asheville. And she talked about really not having her community. I know what she was saying. She was saying there's no diversity down here. And uh, in other words, she was looking for people that would come around her, her, her people to come around her. And I listened to her story. And so we pulled up to the airport and cars lining up behind us and I said now before I get out I'm going to pray for you and I sat there and I prayed for her prayed for her salvation prayed for her life she has no children she has no husband 
and just prayed for her to sense that God was near and that God loved her. Let me tell you something, folks. People are just about falling over themselves if they find out you have a relationship with Christ. They say, can you in some way give me some hope in the desperate situation that I'm in? And God gives us that opportunity to say, listen, your life is all tangled up. I know a God who can disentangle it. Let's stand. All of us standing, our heads bowed. Now, maybe that's where you are this morning. Maybe you walked in here and you say, that's my life. I am tangled up into knots. My life personally, my marriage, my home, my work, my relationship with my children, my relationship with my family, my relationship with friends. Everything is just a, it's just a tangled up mess. And it seems irreversible. It's never going to change. Well, listen. There is a God in heaven that does the impossible. And you can know him by knowing Jesus Christ. By coming to Christ, trusting him, putting your life, your faith, your hope in him. Now, if you're here this morning, you say, I want to do that. I'm going to be standing right here at the front. I can help you do that. You say, well, what do I say? All you do is come to me and say, I want to give my life to Jesus. You say, well, I don't, I don't know what that'll do to me. Well, listen, what you're doing to yourself right now isn't working. Why not come and give yourself to Jesus Christ? Others of you here this morning, you need to come and say, I'm going to be part of this congregation. We're going to be a part of what God is doing in and through this church. Others of you just need to come and get at the altar. Some young person here this morning needs to come and say, God's speaking to me about ministry in my life. Father, in these moments, all the decisions, too many for me to just go through, that need to be made. Will you impress our hearts? Will you give us courage, Father, to trust you? For I pray it in Jesus' name. Our heads bow. Kirkwood sings. You come. Thank you for listening to this recording from Valleydale Church. To find more or to connect with us about what you just heard, check us out at valleydale.org.